Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is between Final Draft veteran Bruce Williams and Jennifer Shahadi. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, that these are unceded lands, and treaty has never been made with Australia's first people. Bruce Williams is a bit of a legend for Final Draft. He is one of the people who originated the show coming up for our 30th birthday. It is so terrific to have him back. And Bruce is bringing us a conversation with Jennifer Shahadi. Jennifer is a two-time US women's chess champion. She's a champion poker player. And she has, in her book, Chess Queens, the story of some of the top female players throughout history and around the world. So join me as we take a trip with Bruce and discover Jennifer Shahadi's Chess Queens. I did say it's going to be 30 minutes. Do you have to rush away? No, no, that's fine. Okay. I feel like we should have a chess clock. Haha, and- <laughs> yes. Love it. <laughs> so my family is leaving the now, so you won't hear little Fabi in the background. I'm just going to say bye to them. I'll be right back. Oh, that's all right. Anyway, congratulations on Chess Queens. It's a fantastic read. I, I very much enjoyed it. It's an updated and expanded version of your first book, Chess Bitch, and I wonder how difficult it was to let go of the original title. Oh, yeah, that was pretty um, difficult. I love, I love as I write in the introduction to Chess Queens, I really feel like Chess Bitch is the spirit of the book in that it shows like the point of view that women in chess should be angry and that the Chess Queen um, should be angry, uh, the crazy women's chess queen. Yeah. But I think that Chess Queens is a better title for reaching the most number of people because, you know, chess is an international game and bitch is not really an international word. It's like in the United States, it has this very like power, power, like bitch boss connotation, but it really doesn't carry to every culture. Whereas like queen, like the game of chess does carry over the chess queen. And there's there's also the reference to um, Queen's Gambit, the, the the word Queens, yeah. yeah. That's true too. Yeah, the books are a, a mixture of of history, like secondary sources, primary sources. There's your own memoir um, side of it, and there's also some not quite essays, but political discussion. And it's an interesting combination. And as they say, um, combination is the heart of chess. Um, how did you um, arrive at this combination? I just thought that I, I was always interested in creative nonfiction. I've loved, I love that genre. And I think that it seemed to me that being that I am a chess player and a chess champion myself, I have to bring in some of my own thoughts and experiences But the primary goal of the book is to acquaint people with the great women of chess and also show them how 
learning about the great women of chess can open their eyes to a lot of the difficulties that women in chess face and make their questions about gender and about chess popularity and growth more intelligent. So I thought that this was a great vehicle to do that because through the specific, you get to the universal, right? So my own story, which is as specific as you're going to get, because I have all of the details. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, that combined with the great women of chess, both historical and, um, and modern, I thought this was like a really great way to do it. That really used my skills best as a great chess player. And as an interviewer, I think that it uh, really worked well for me because I am, I'm not super long winded. So I think it's really like for me in writing, I often have trouble reaching the word count rather than like (laughs) having too many words. So for me, it was really useful to be able to kind of um, intertwine all of these different elements and make for a really meaty book. One of the things that um, comes out in uh, in the book is the different motivations of um, the, the the players and how they see chess either as uh, an end in itself or a vehicle to uh, a different, more exciting life. And uh, that comes up very much in the first two women that you profile, Vera Menchik and uh, Sonia Graf. I wonder if you'd like to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that I think is great because, it, as you mentioned, it comes up in the first chapter or the, or the second chapter about Sonia Graf and Vera Menchik. So Vera Menchik was the eight-time women's world champion, the first female of all time to play in the best tournaments of her time, also against men most of the time. And her personality was very quiet and reserved. um, And everybody had great things about her. Whereas Sonia Graf was in personality type, the exact opposite, very flamboyant, loved to party, used chess, not only as a game that she loved, but also as a vehicle to travel the world and to um, find find beauty and not only in the game of chess, but in the world and also to pursue freedom, freedom against the expectations that she lived the life that people expect her to live freedom against, uh, as it turned out, Nazi Germany, because she was a vocal anti-fascist and probably would have been killed or imprisoned if uh, she had been in Germany during the breakout of World War II, turned out to be in Buenos Aires and made a new life for herself there. So the vehicle of chess for Sonia and the ability to prove how great she was, even though she was extremely quiet for Vera, this comes up again and again in the book with modern players. You see these two archetypes um, and the, the different ways that women use chess to improve their lives. I guess I would, especially at the time, I was so attracted to Sonia's story for two reasons, um, and now as well. When I first found out about it, and now, um, one, because I thought it was crazy how little was known about her just because she never won the Women's World Championship, even though she's just this fantastic character. It just goes to show how quickly we forget people who don't, reach our own, you know, levels of greatness, like what we think, what, what level you need to, we think you need to create reach in order for you to be remembered, I think is often quite arbitrary and leaves out a lot of important history. 
So that's one reason. And then, of course, I also saw my own desires and chess kind of mirrored through her, like the, the desire to travel. Like I remember when she got an invitation to play in a tournament in um, I don't think it was Spain, but she got a, an invitation to play in a tournament in a country she'd never visited before, maybe Sweden. And her first reaction was um, how fantastic to go to a new country that I've never been to before. And that is exactly how I used to feel when I started to become strong enough that I got invited to international competitions, that that was like the greatest thing ever. Yeah. One of the things that, that, that uh, I, I, I think and have, have to keep rethinking is that, is that um, chess is a very segregated um, uh sport or activity there's a minority of women and a majority of men um, but I have to remind myself that if you compare it with engineering it's not that's the that's one of the things that um, Vera um, uh, uh, and and Sonia got was a way of being a professional woman uh- I I, uh, I think that chess isn't an open door to a lot of women. Yes and no, because there are many people who are extremely excited to see the top women players all the way back to Vera Menchik and Sonia Graf. You could see that they had the support of great trainers um, like uh, Maroxi in um, Vera's case and Tarash in Sonia Graf's case. Uh, but that said, of course, there are so many examples of women who are discouraged from playing chess, told it's a man's game. You know, you don't have time for that. That's not what women do. Um, the pieces are too heavy. You might strain yourself, <laughs> uh, especially globally. There's so many places in the world where women weren't really encouraged to play chess, you know, any, everywhere, really, from the United States um, yeah. to India. But it's those exceptional women who are able to do it anyway. And once they do become strong, a lot of times their cheerleaders are very vocal, but there are so many counter examples of women who weren't told, and we don't have their stories because, you know, they weren't strong enough to be interviewed about it. Like it would just be like a, a bit chasing, chasing down somebody who didn't play chess because they were discouraged from doing it. It's very difficult because, you know, you just don't, you don't uh, can easily locate them because they, they don't play chess, right? And they might not even be interested in talking about it. So, yeah, I think that uh, survivorship bias is something that really goes on a lot in chess. That's why a lot of the women I talk to in the book or a lot of the women I talk to in general in ladies' night and other venues, in poker also, um, you see a lot of women when asked about, like, being a female in chess or poker, a lot of times people are very, very positive. And they say, like, the experience is mostly positive. And uh, I don't completely respect that opinion and that lived experience, but I also think it's dangerous to take too much from it because of survivorship bias. And even the perspective of players who have done well, I think of Susan Polgar. She only a couple of days ago posted something about how her uh, how she'd been insulted as you know being fat and ugly and stupid and all these things that she patently isn't and and that's that's a um a theme in some of her um well her her life that she still feels traumatized by some of the terrible things that happened to her even though that she was so successful and so well regarded 
Yeah, it's sad because Susan Polgar had to endure so many um, obstacles um, to kind of get the Polgar sisters where they are today. And it's unfortunate that, you know, she had to carry such a burden. I mean, from the Hungarian Chess Federation not wanting her to play against men to, you know, hostile remarks about her gender or her looks or her um, her religion or all or her her opinions. Um, it is it is really um, unfortunate. But of course, she's also incredibly successful and has so many fans as well. So, yeah, it, it and it's you know, it's good. I think that she speaks up about it because it's good for people to see that other side that it wasn't so easy. Right. Yes. She just didn't just go and win games and walk out again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even in the, my book, I talk about one article she wrote where she says that she purposely tried to make herself look ugly at some in, in some stage in her career because she didn't want to be harassed. So, you know, she tried to downplay her looks and, you know, her figure, which, of course, you hear a lot of women do that when they're in their teens or early 20s to just kind of like blend in and not be sexualized. Um, that, of course, is a theme that comes up in the book. There's another sure. strong chess player, obviously nowhere near Susan Polgar's level. Not many people are, um, but there's a player uh, who's this incredible chess coach, Elizabeth Spiegel, and she used to uh, play a lot of um, open tournaments as well. She was getting close to the chess master. She was around chess expert, which is 2000 rated in the United States. Um, and at some point she shaved off her head, partly because she also felt that she was just constantly getting hit on and she was kind of curious about what it would be like to just interact without people kind of making her looks as the primary interest um, of her. Yeah. Now, you were in 1998, you were the first um, girl female to win the U.S. Junior Open. Yeah. And I wonder, just paint the picture of that. Like how, how many, what was the ratio of boys and girls and what was the kind of um, playing um, environment? I remember that what I remember most about that tournament, it was like that I was very determined to play in it because it was in, it was in upstate New York. It was like a five or six hour bus ride. And I did it all along and I had a very specific reason. So, you know, a lot of times I traveled with my brother to play tournaments because he's a great player or my, my dad or, schoolmates in college. I had a chess team. I also had a great friend in Irina crush. So there was a lot of times that I would travel with people, but I went all alone. And the reason was really clear. It was because I wanted to win that tournament to play in the U S junior clothes championship, which women almost never got to play in. And I wanted to be the first woman to win that event. And yeah, just to, just to have a plan come together like that, it, to, to win it after I had planned so methodically the idea of going there um, by myself and traveling back was really great. Um, I don't remember there being any other girls there, but I could be wrong. I, there weren't any girls on the top boards, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, That must be such a confronting, or well, I imagine, I, I've been in a, in a very few environments when I've been the only guy and it freaks you right out. Um, and to to do that all over the world, time and time again, when when you're um, com competing against um, male players, 
uh, and you've got the, the things to negotiate, like the toilets and what you do afterwards and if there's a party, who do you dance with and all those sorts, all those sorts of things. It must be quite difficult to, to negotiate. I think it is, but I think it seems normal to a lot of chess players, female chess players, because they've, they do it for so long. So it's not like it doesn't like creep up on you. You know what I mean? Like from the very beginning, you know that you're super outnumbered. So a lot of women who end up being successful in the game kind of revel in the experience of being one of the only females. Like there's obviously some good things about it. And like I said earlier with the survivorship bias, like the ones who do end up really enjoying that. I loved it. I loved being one of the only girls because in the beginning I didn't, obviously, when I was like a kid, like especially 11, 12, I even gave up chess for a couple of years. Um, but when I, I was already very strong, I actually enjoyed the attention. I enjoyed, you know, people being, um, underestimating me and then beating and then me beating them. Um, yeah, I thought, I thought that was, I got a really kick out of that. And I enjoyed the fans that I would get because people would like be so excited that I was there. Yeah. And, and you, you touch on it, a, a, a sort of, a, a, an attitude is some people thrive on it, some um, and some people don't. So you've got um, Vera Menchik who said, I, I want to drink men's blood now um, after she, she'd won the, the, the Women's World Championship a couple of times. And I w- would like you to talk about some of the work you do with girls and setting up tournaments and environments for young women and girls to learn and play. Yeah, via my work with U.S. Chess Women, and I also partner often with other organizations, I've done a lot to create safe and fun spaces for girls and women to interact, play chess, often train together. That's huge for me. I'm really big on like creating spaces for women to train together because some women prefer to play open tournaments. Some prefer to play women's tournaments. Some prefer a mix of the two. But I can tell you almost all girls enjoy training with other girls and women because it, uh, it it gives you friends, right? You know, friends to maybe travel with the tournaments and to look at the game with. So that's something I do quite frequently. We have these uh, during the pandemic, we had all these Zoom sessions where the, all the girls um, would come together to learn from great players. We even had Gary Kasparov come in once to talk about his work consulting on the Queen's Gambit and some of the games that he worked on. We had Judith Polgar, of course, the number one female player in history. Um, We had so many people mentioned the book from Fiona Mutesi to Nadia Ortiz. um, And all these girls were all these women. There were some girls who came as well, like Carissa Yip. But in general, these women and girls were inspiring the next generation and it's beautiful to see. It's beautiful to see the friendships that come out of that. There's a, a, a photograph that, um, back to uh, Susan Polgar ha- has uh, shared, which is a, a photograph of, of her in the spa, um, with, surrounded by um, people watching her play. Um, she's about 20. Have you seen this photograph? Um, um, she, yeah, she's I in think a, I've seen that one. Huh? Sw- sw- yeah. And I work in child protection. And I look at a photograph like that and I think, oh, that, that's, that's really nice. Everyone seems to be keeping a respectful distance. It's, it's, it seems good. But the risks are just terrible <laughs> um, in terms of the chances of something, you know, um, 
uh, very unpleasant occurring. And is 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 uh, I remember you speaking about a three person rule or something like that um, when 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 you've got girls competing with lots and lots of guys. Well, yeah, I think in general, children need to be protected um, when they're playing um, chess. And the uh, the key there, as we've learned from other sports, like sadly, like in gymnastics and USA Gymnastics, um, in so many different cases, we've learned about how sometimes the coaching role can become abusive um, and predatory. Um, you know, obviously, it's the exception. You know, most uh, coaches in chess are absolutely wonderful, but you know, traumatizing a child is uh, such a horrible thing that we have to do everything we can to prevent even one case of it. And I think that um, it chess is this particular risk because the chess lessons often happen in, in like hotel rooms, which is an extremely private space, which can be really dangerous. So yeah, there's like an idea that there's a rule, a safe sport rule that you should always have at least three people in the room. It could be two students and one teacher or two teachers and one student, but some way that uh, you don't have uh, the possibility of a, a predatory relationship. Now, this is pretty complicated because, I mean, obviously, you know, stopping stopping predation is just it's such a complicated uh, question that requires some nuance as well, because there could be cases where you actually do want a child to feel comfortable confiding in a grown-up, right? Yeah. Um, so that, that uh, I, yeah, that, that's something I think that we need to be clear about that. Uh, you just need to think critically about this all the time because, yeah, it's a bit of a moving target. You know, unfortunately, sure. predators will, are very, very good at trying to figure out ways to get away with what they want to get away with. And it sure is. Like I said, it's a very small minority, but we, nobody, chess can give people so much so much and nobody should have the opposite experience of it traumatizing them and your yeah. uh, chess pitch was published in 2005 and here we are it's, uh, a lot a lot has happened in in the meantime one of the things that's happened is and COVID has played a part of this i i, I think is that pr- the um pr- proliferation of of streaming and online options. You deal with this uh, in your book about uh, l- looking at a, a, a wider variety of ways to be successful in chess. Exactly. And, and I'm going to be expanding on that more in my next book, but exactly. I think that's really powerful. The fact that streaming has made it possible to be great at chess by not only being good at playing the game, but also good at entertaining people and building a community around chess um, and getting a, a lot of joy out of it. I love that. And you can see that a lot of women have su- succeeded in that field, like the Botez sisters and Anna Rudolph and Anna Kramling and Kiyu Zhao. So yeah, that's, I think that's really good that there are different ways to succeed in chess now. I mean, it goes beyond even streaming. I mean, there's education, there's tech. There's a lot of ways to be successful in chess, and some of them we really see a, a strong female presence. Uh, and I didn't cover every single one of them on my book. It, you know, it's outside the scope. I mean, organizers, like so many different ways that I think women leaders in chess is incredibly important. 
And then you have the sort of the, the issue of uh, of the sexualization of women in chess. That um, the the Boats, I can't pronounce their their names. Sisters, they you know they they um, they um, lively and interesting, but also good looking girls, um, and the, the, their sort of um, for, forerunners such as um, Alexandra Kostinyuk, um, uh, and how you feel about. I, mean, I wonder how you feel about that's that that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I think it's uh, I think it's a great it's a great uh, a great question. It's kind of it's some in some ways, as you can see in the book, I, I tackle this question in the chapter about Alexander Kostinuk about lookism and sexualization in chess. And I think that you know before anything it needs to be stated that like these women who have created global platforms around their brand are really some of the hardest working people I know. Like. I think the Botez sisters, you know, particularly Alexander Botez, who started the brand, um, is just an entrepreneurial genius, really. You know, I mean, I'm, I've been really impressed with her because she's uh, so good at, at growing um, and so thoughtful about it and uh, so hardworking at it. Uh, and then same thing with Alexander Kostanyuk, actually. Funny, they have the same name. Like, as I write in the book, she actually was doing things like Instagram and podcasting like decades before people were doing it. It's insane, you know, how ahead of time she was. Uh, But still, yeah, it's like, it's a, it's a shame that in general, we have such an emphasis on looks in our culture. So there's, there's uh, some great things about it. And I think that uh, it's really wonderful for girls to have all these different role models in chess in different ways. But I also do wish that there was like a less of a focus on, you know, Instagram and how you look um, over how you play, because it can just be an overwhelming amount of stress and pressure for women. I mean, regardless of the fact that not everybody can do it. So it kind of like, you know, narrows the pool of people who could be become great. It also, I think, is incredibly difficult for people. You know, I really think women in chess right now who are combining streaming with competitive play um, are just some of the hardest working people in chess because they're working on their game, they're working on their community, and they're also managing all these social media um, platforms and they're doing all their hair and makeup and wardrobe. It's like they're actually, instead of using their looks as a way to like, you know, take an easy way out, it's actually become, you know, triply um, difficult for them. So yeah, I, I don't, it's so hard. It's such a big question. It's like, the best way to start is just kind of chipping away and chipping away, just trying in your own world to like focus less on how people look like when you're meeting, you know, little children, you know, to focus on what they say and what they do rather than on how they look. Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough problem. I think that we can make small progress with and also maybe tech companies can make a lot larger progress at but uh chess itself is more of like a mirror of what's happening in the world as as we wind up let's uh take a take a different tack and i'm going to ask you a question which you asked some people uh and um at least one of your the, the people you asked didn't respond to very well what's your favorite chess piece 
Ah, uh, yeah, it's hilarious. Oh, gosh. Well, it's got to be the queen. You know, the <laughs> queen is definitely the best piece because she is the history of women empowerment in the game kind of encapsulated in a single chess piece. So she, she was the weakest piece on the board over 500 years ago. And when she became the powerful piece in circa 1500, she changed the game for the better. Yet there was a lot of backlash, right? So people called her the crazy queen, the hysterical queen, um, overly ambitious, um, true she devil. They said all these horrible things about the new queen, but she ended up changing the game for the good. And I think that's just um, an incredibly elegant metaphor for the ways that when you bring women power into a field that they haven't had it before, they make that field better, but they often get the credit that they deserve. So I have so to say it, queen. It's amazing. Just uh, like you, you must have faced people um, men uh, over the board, and it's kind of a, it's an an intimate sort of thing. You you can smell them, you can hear their breathe, their their, their breathing, um, um, and th- th- there'll be some people who don't care whether you're a boy or a girl, right? There'll be some people who would prefer you to be a boy, but don't really care that much. There are some people who go, look, the whole reason I do this is I don't have to hang out with chicks. I've got <laughs> boys in front of me. Yeah, that's all. I, and there are some people that just hate the fact that you're there. Do, uh, did you experience that uh, th- that hate level from some of your opponents? The what? The height level? You said that, the, the hate level. Like, like they just really. The, it's not like they would prefer you. It's they prefer you not to be there. It's that they really, really don't want you to be there. Hate? I don't. I, I think I don't think so. I think that's that. I don't think I ever experienced like pure hatred from a p- opponent in a chess game. No. Um. Yeah. In, in especially like in the game itself, I think around the tournament and the culture of chess is a little bit where things are more dangerous for women. Like, um, often because alcohol is involved, and because you know sometimes tournaments are held in like again, hotels, parties and hotel rooms. I think those tend to be the contexts where mm-hmm. there's more like hatred and potential danger for women. I think actually over the board tends to be a pretty safe space. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, because there's so many people around and there's tournament directors and the culture of chess is to be kind of like quiet and just like stare at the board. So yeah. Uh, I've experienced a lot of negativity in chess, but a lot of it is um, off, off, off the board itself. It's in the culture, especially the, the online culture. The online culture has a ton of trolls and haters and like nastiness. Yeah, and on the board itself, you deal with this as, as well. There are some f- funny heteronormative kinds of things, like the kings can never be side by side, right? And uh, I, I like it. And there's also um, cultural normatives like um, uh, bishops of a different colour can never collide. They only pass in the night. Right. Um, and my, uh, my favourite uh, piece is the pawn because it has superpowers at the beginning and then it changes all its, on its way up. When it gets to the fifth rank, it can do en passant. And when it gets to the seventh rank, it's incredibly dangerous. And then when it gets to the eighth rank, you can have a sex change and become super powerful. 
Yeah, I love the pawn. The pawn is a great answer. I feel like the pawn is, you know, as they say, the pawn is the the soul of chess. And in some ways, I think that it's actually the most important piece, not the king, because the the pawns really create the structure um, where chess is played. It like creates the bones, the soul, they say, but also it's like the bones of the game. Um, without it, without this crazy rule that it can like capture differently than it moves, the game yeah. <laughs> of chess would either be really boring or just a mess, you know? Yeah. It's like that absolute like perfect combination of dynamism and staticness. Yeah, and so it, captu- pawn- it moves It moves straight but captures diagonal, yes. Yeah, that, that's really, really integral to like the, uh, the reason that chess is such a great game because yeah. it's all about the kind of fitting the human mind, right? It's like a good match for the mind. Um, and the brain wants something that's not too messy, but not too static. And without the pawn, chess wouldn't give us that. It's been great to talk to, talk to you. I've really enjoyed it. And congratulations on the book. And I'll, I'll, I'll let you get on with the rest of your day. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about Chess Queens and for your thoughtful read of it. And as I understand, in Australia, they have the paperback, which is so exciting. I, 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 have, I actually haven't even gotten to see one myself yet. So I'm, I'm very excited that uh, when my Australian friends post a photo of the book online, because it's like, that's, that's a new one, that one I haven't seen yet. <laughs> Fantastic. That's it for this great conversation with Jennifer Shahadi. Jennifer's new book is Chess Queens. It is out now from Hachette. Thank you so much to Bruce Williams for bringing that in. Bruce, as I mentioned at the top, is one of the originators of Final Draft, one of the people who made this show happen. And we're now going, you know, we're... We're getting into our 30th year, 30th birthday celebrations. Will we have cake? <laughs> As we say goodbye, I'm going to remind you, Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. Love to hear from you. We are on the socials. Look for at Final Draft 2SER on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and subscribe wherever you are listening to this podcast. You'll get a new Great Conversation every week. If you are enjoying the show... Give us a few stars, maybe five. Leave a rating. I would love to hear what you think. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.